welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Carmelita. And we're here to talk about the 2011 remake of Fright Night, starring Anton Yelkin, Colin Farrell, Tony Collette, Imogen Poots, Christopher Mintz-Plasse, and David Tennant. Written by Marty Noxon, based on a Tom Holland script and his original movie. Directed by Craig Gillespie on a $30 million budget. Grossed $41 million at the box office, but only about 18 and a half of that was a U.S. side. So, Carmelita, welcome back to Filmstrip. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I'm so happy to be here. I mean, it's vampire movie time. Who else are we going to have? Uh, it's it, it, it's it like my favorite thing. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, when you and I reviewed the original Fright Night, you mentioned that you had not seen the remake yet. And in general, you don't go for remakes. So I wanted to kind of pick up with that vampire movie. First off, how, why did you avoid this 10 years ago? And, you know, uh, what, what is it about remakes that you just don't go for? You know, I'm, I'm trying, it's funny because we typically think of as people get older that they get more closed minded. And, and maybe that's true in some respects, you get more firm in knowing what it is you like and don't like, but I'm trying to be more balanced. I'm trying to be more open-minded these days because I can be a purist <laughs> and I can be stubborn. And traditionally I avoid remakes because I'm just like, there's no way it's going to be as good as the original. I'm just going to be disappointed or angry or outraged or not pleased. So to, in the past, to spare myself coming out of the movie theater pissed off, I would just avoid them. I would just avoid them pretty much all the time. And every once in a while, someone would, you know, at a friend's house, they'd put a movie on or They'd, you know, someone would talk me into something, but for the most part, kind of keep my distance from remakes, but something, this is the power of podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) It talks you into so many bad things. (laughs) When I get asked to watch a remake to discuss with someone on their podcast, it puts me in the mind frame of kind of just clearing away expectations just go into something with an open mind open to whatever the experience is going to be and so far I've had some pretty good results with that there's something about the fact that I know I'm going to be on record (laughs) talking about something yeah (laughs) that that I'm able to be like okay don't be an ass just sit down, give it a chance. Evaluate this movie on its own merits. And so, you know, Fright Night, like we talked about, it's it's vampires. I love vampires. I should have been open to giving this a chance when it came out. Colin Farrell. I had a huge crush on Colin Farrell in the early 2000s, which had already kind of waned a little by the point this came out, but that should have been a selling point. I love Tony Collette. I love her. I'm always happy to see Tony Collette starring in something. 
So there were a lot of things about this that I should have been drawn to, but I was being stubborn at the time. And I can recognize that in myself. I'm trying to get better. And I'm so glad that you encouraged me in our, our previous discussion of the original Fright Night. And so when we talked about sitting down again to talk movies and Fright Night, the remake came up, it was like, yeah, I am open to seeing that. And I really thank you for that because this was fun. Well, good. I'm glad you you were open to the experience. I can say this, that if you go back and listen to me 11 years ago, there's some of those movies that are on film strip record. I really wish I could give a second look at. <laughs> um, I've probably watched them again and I'm a lot more fair than I used to be. I used to be pretty rough on stuff. I think the older I've gotten, the more I appreciate what it takes to actually pull something together. And True. I, I, I can appreciate failure that happens because people are actually trying to do something. It's when a movie's lazy that it annoys me. And that's, that's the one where I, I usually will still rant about that. And I've used the medium popcorn label a lot of times for stuff like that. Cause I felt like, Oh, you could have been great, but you just decided to be cheap and stupid. And you know um, that, that always bugs me. But I, you know, like I, I think about a movie like Batman and Robin that I totally railed on, you know, many, many moons ago and i can watch that now and just totally laugh and go like this is the dumb popcorn movie and it's not supposed to be you know high art what was right. i thinking you know what what did i want it to be and not that those burton ones were either you know so anyway it's it's just funny how that stuff goes and here on film strip i mean goodness gracious it, it's whiplash sometimes to review stuff like leprechaun three and then turn around and do dr strange love you yeah, know so yeah. it's it, it, that's just what we do uh here so it's a lot of fun to come back to this now to get to fright night I knew when this was coming out uh, because I had seen the trailer for it. I was like, holy cow, Colin Farrell is a vampire. Sure. Cause <laughs> I liked him too. I maybe had a man crush. I don't know what it was. And then he kind of like went away. Cause he had some like personal problems and he got that straightened out. And then he came back and he just started doing weird, interesting stuff. He would do this. He would do a period piece. I'm maybe the only person on earth that doesn't hate the total recall remake he was in. I thought that was actually better than the, the it's more true to the story than the, you know, I'm a Philip K. Dick purist, but, but I, I like Colin Farrell. So they did that Anton Yelkin. I'm like, I've loved this guy since he was a kid, you know, Charlie Bartlett and alpha dog and you know, all this. And it's, it's so sad that, you know, he was taken from us so soon. Um, died when he was 27 in a, in a freak accident with his car. Uh, but I, you know, I knew him and Tony Collette, I, I could watch her act the phone book and I'm down. She does cool stuff all the time. Even nothing rolls. She's fun. I like her. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was into this. I was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be, this looks like to be cool. And Christopher Mintz plots it's, it's past my age range, but like all the Seth Rogen ish humor, like all those guys came along and I just found something really funny about that because those guys did not give a F about anything. And they just would go out yeah. and do this outlandish stuff. And it's very much similar to like the early eighties when I was coming up, people did stuff that like, <gasps> clutch the pearls you know and oh, i always yeah would never get made today right right but I, I appreciate humor and comedians that will push that boundary i think you have to have people like that because that's what makes art fun sure. so so you throw all that in a blender and then you tell me marty noxon is writing this thing and i've I, i've had a lot of years of having fun with marty on the buffy show that brian and i did for mm -hmm. a number of years and there's some of her decisions that I eh, thought weren't as creatively interesting as maybe she does, but I'll never knock the fact that she is a prolific writer and producer and knows how to make a good fun story. So when I found out they were kind of given Marty Noxon 
who was the is probably the most accomplished of the Joss Whedon Buffy writers of all of it. A lot of Definitely. them have gone on to do some good stuff, but she's the one that's done incredible stuff. They gave her that, and then I found out an interesting tidbit on the on the front end when this movie was being made that they went to Tom Holland. And they said, we want to do this, but we need you to do the story treatment for it. And he gets story credit on this, not just because of his original screenplay, Mm. but he said, well, if you're going to do it nowadays, this is what you should do. And then Marty Noxon took that and gave it all of its charm and all the good dialogue and stuff. But he came up with the, you do it in Vegas because it's the best setup ever for a vampire. You can say you work all night, you sleep all day, nobody blinks an eye and nobody's from there. (laughs) You know, So people come and go, nobody cares. It's great cover. And I thought, well, that's a genius turn on how to do this story. And so, yeah. And so, so I was down for this. I went and saw it. I drug my poor wife to it on opening weekend. uh, We went and saw it in August and I I saw it in 3d. I mean, we had, we had the whole experience. It was a lot of fun and you can see now, you know, with the parts that are supposed to be 3d and stuff. And I got to say like, some of it dates better than others. We can talk about that as we go into it, but I had a good time with it and it kind of bummed me out that it didn't make as much money as I thought it it could have, you know, like it, it really wasn't a hit. It was like sixth when it premiered and then it just dropped dropped off the map um, and and forgot because it was in a weird time in movies when they, they don't want to put it out too early in the year because nobody wants to see this kind of thing early in the year, right? So you put it out around Halloween, though, at that time, you're going to get creamed by paranormal activity or whatever Saw movies coming out. Right. So they put it out in August, which is the end of summer. It's not really a summer movie. <laughs> it's, it's not something's going to get the kids out. And I don't think people just knew what it was. So this one's definitely had a life on, of its own on, on home viewing and stuff. But, uh, you know, it's 10 years old now. That's the other thing, too, is I go, gosh, this movie's 10 years old. Where did my life go? Because uh, I can remember <laughs> going to see it, you know, just like it was yesterday or whatever. But, no, uh, I saw I saw this when it came out. So I, I liked it then. But it had been a while since I rewatched it. I think, mm. I think we saw it on. This is on Netflix or one of those several years back. It, it popped up on one of the streaming services and we're like, yeah, let's rewatch that. And we rewatched it. And, you know, it's been three or four years since since I watched it for this review. So it's not one I come back to as often as the original Fright Night, but I'm OK with that. And as far as me on remakes, I mean, as long as, again, they're not completely lazy, I, I can have some fun with them. Like the, a good example of that, like the When a Stranger Calls remake actually mm. takes the best part of that story and makes a whole movie out of it. And, and that, that was a smart move. Like it's not entirely executed great because the third act, it really falls apart, but that story's really only meant to last about 30 minutes anyway. Right. So, so that one's okay. The black Christmas remake, the first one, not the most recent one is awful. <laughs> and it's awful. Like on a level that you can laugh at with a bunch of friends, <laughs> but if you watch it by yourself, you need to question your life. Like it's not, it's not good <laughs> on, on any level. So like, they, you know, they, they come and go, they go in a lot of different ways of, of how they could work. Uh, so I, I go into remakes with, the the mindset and the idea of can you take what's there and not necessarily improve upon it but can you give me a new spin with it can you give me something that is going to make me go like oh that's different than the last okay what's that about and but still kind of get to the same point because if the movie's good enough to get a remake it obviously had something that lasted like we talked about last time that original fright night is a cult classic no absolutely one of my my recent experiences with giving something a try and being very pleased was the uh, Rob Zombie Halloween remakes. Mm. My friends at the film Alchemist asked if I would participate in a discussion on that. I had never seen them. And I was like, okay, for you, you know, I'm willing to, I'm game. I'll do it. 
I actually really love them. And in part because they take, you know, the, the root of what's great about the Michael Myers story and they, but they are, you know, Rob Zombie is willing to take it in different directions. And so, you know, some of the, the great bones are there, but he takes it in a, you know, in a different, he goes a different route. And so it, it stands on its own. I don't have to compare it to the original because nothing will be as good as Halloween. Right. Or have that same impact that Halloween had on my life, but I can enjoy Rob Zombie's Halloween for what it is, for what it's trying to do, for what they had the gumption to attempt and execute really well. And so, yeah, I think, you know, or you have on the, the, the flip side of that is when you have something like the psycho remake where it's like, <laughs> let's do a scene for scene remake. And it's like, come yeah, on. Yeah. Like that's, you, you, you can't make that work. You've got to be willing to take some risks in, in changing the story a little in taking elements that you want to expand upon updating it. Like you have to, you have to be willing to do something with the story. Exactly. And, and, and Mike from Atkins undisputed in the Dana Buckler show joined Ron and I for a very interesting discussion of that psycho remake, go back to the archives. <laughs> you can check that out. Cause we had a lot of fun going, what the hell is that? Um, and the like, answer is a, do that? And, and a very expensive, like, art school project or something just depending yeah. on you know, what, what what you ask the director on what day but to, to get around to where you are and i'll agree with you on those rob zombie halloween remakes i've come around on them to the point to say you know what i give them credit i give him credit for being different and doing his own thing and particularly with that second one because he didn't want to make it he didn't want them to make it and then when he found that they were going to he said well at least let me do it and he did what they wanted for the first 10 minutes and then yeah. he did what he wanted. And I would never recommend this generally, but I will tell people all the time, if you want to really experience what that Rob Zombie Halloween 2 is, watch the director's cut of it. Don't watch the theatrical cut. It doesn't make a ton more sense, but at least you can see what he's trying to do. The theatrical cut is cut to hell so bad. You, you have no idea what's going on in it. And uh, it's one of the few movies, like I remember just walking out of the theater. I even walked out like as it was ending, like whatever, I don't, this is awful. And then when I watched it again later, the director's cut, I was like, okay, I kind of see what you're doing. And I've, I've come around on that as again, a really interesting experiment of the idea. It's almost like, let's pretend Halloween was this true crime redneck saga. And, you know, and that's yes. what he did with it. Yes. And I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. It's, I it's really a, enjoyed it. It's a much different experience. And that's, what's cool about it. And so when we get back to Fright Night here, going into this, I'm like, okay, what are you going to give us different? And they give us yeah. a lot of the same, but they give us a lot different too. So let me do a quick plot summary and we'll get into talking about the movie. Charlie Brewster, played by Anton Yelkin, is climbing up the social ladder as Las Vegas high school thanks to ditching his geeky friends in his past after he starts dating super popular Amy, played by Imogen Poots. 
But that past is coming back to warn him by his former best friend, Ed, and who is convinced that a vampire is preying on locals and has come for some of their mutual friends and lives in Charlie's neighborhood. In fact, next door, Charlie's reluctant to hear any of this um, until he starts noticing strange things happening with that new neighbor, a guy named Jerry, who says he's a construction worker who takes night shifts and sleeps during the day. But when a neighbor disappears, Charlie investigates and finds out it's all true. Jerry's indeed a vampire. Jerry, naturally annoyed by all of this, decides to go after Charlie. Charlie, his mom and his girlfriend. They have a great chase. Chris St. Randon makes a great cameo. We'll talk about that. But his mom ends up in the hospital after an attack, and Jerry even turns Ed into a vampire. So Charlie goes to seek help the only place he knows he can find it. Famed vampire killer, magician, showman in Vegas, Peter Vincent. So Peter initially refuses any of this uh, stuff uh, to help Charlie and reveals later on that both of his parents were killed by a vampire. It's later actually revealed to be Jerry himself and an interesting plot twist. But he does give Charlie some help and a stake blessed by St. Michael that will kill Jerry and turn all of his victims back into humans. Ed attacks uh, at Peter's place and Charlie reluctantly kills his former friend and Amy attacks. But Jerry uh, uh, turns the tables on her and turns her into a vampire and takes her away, much like the first one. But without the sexy dance scene in the club. Charlie and Peter plan an assault at the Jerry house. And then when all it looks like is lost, Peter's able to uh, shoot holes in the ceiling uh, enough where actually uh, Charlie shoots holes in the ceiling to let enough sunlight in to give Peter a break uh, so that he can uh, distract Jerry. And then putting on a fire retardant suit as part of one of Peter's uh, magic acts, lights himself on fire, throws himself at Jerry and uh, is able to distract the vampire enough to stake him with that St. Michael's uh, stake, turning all the old friends, including Dave Franco uh, back into normal. uh, And Amy turns back to normal and everything is cool. And Jerry's vanquished. And we end with Charlie and Amy finally able to get some alone time in Peter's Vegas penthouse as credits roll. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. Uh, we do a lot of different things. And I think the first thing we've got to talk about is the, the cold open that we jump into here. And I credit almost all of this to everything I know about Marty Knox and the way she stages stuff. This is how Buffy episodes open. There's always a cold yeah. that may or may not involve the actual cast, but there's something that's going to set up what is what is going to happen for the rest of the thing. And you don't really get a good look at what's the big bad or any of it. You just know that there's like some horrendous murder happening. And one thing I'll give this movie credit for is it is an R-rated horror movie. And so many times the horror remakes do the PG-13 thing, which mm-hmm. people rail on as they hate. And some of them are better than others, but I understand why that decision gets made financially by a studio but this time they said nope this is a hard r we're going to drop f-bombs we're going to have all kinds of crazy stuff the only thing we're not going to have is real nudity in this uh but we're going to have a lot of blood and a lot of gore and we get it right here at the beginning that that uh murder at the vegas house is pretty unsettling to start with oh yeah it's a bloodbath and it it was like right off the bat they're telling me we're not giving you a scene by scene of the original fright night they're letting me know right out the gate that they're they're doing it a little differently. Because, you know, in the original, we don't get to the really hard horror gore of the story until that last half, really that last act. Yeah. We slowly ease in to the gory horror in the original. And this one is like, nope, we're going to open with that and just let you know where you're at and set you up. And, and it, I, I thought it was really cool. It is cool. And they open though, very similar. They're setting us up because I had forgotten how this movie started. And I was like, 
are they going back to the original where Charlie and Amy are making out? Because you see right. the, the Peter Vincent commercial on TV, which is hilarious that they turned him into like David Blaine or, you know, like Chris Angel. Chris Angel. Yes. Freak. Yes. All of that. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I am there for that. That is perfect. David doing that is awesome. I, you know, I'm watching all that and you see this dog is kind of eating a sandwich that's been left behind by what you assume are the kids that are making out on the couch, but no, you come back and you pull back and realize there's a kid running for his life because his parents have been slaughtered in the house in front of him. And he's, he's trying to get his dad's gun and unlock it. And, I mean, yeah, it's a very startling, gory scene. And then you jump right into the the great credits flying over the desert. And if you've ever been to Vegas, like I, I try to explain to people where I'm from, where it's lush greenery everywhere and stuff. When you fly to Vegas, you really should fly at night because you appreciate the fact that you're flying over nothing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, boom, lights out of nowhere. But in the daytime, I've, I've gone in where I've flown in at night before and then flown out in the daytime. And it reminded me so much about this goes. It's like, oh, there's actually neighborhoods down there. You, you don't even there realize are. like, yeah, people live and you know, work around Las Vegas who aren't it's part of, story. yeah, who aren't part of the casino culture. But I love <laughs> that as a setting and the way that we set that up and they drop us right into who these people are and the fact that the, you know, the mom character was important last time, but when you cast Tony Collette, you've now you've cast like the coolest Gen X mom that you could get for this millennial kid. And, and you, I don't know. I, I liked the way her and Anton Yelkin played off of each other just in that first scene. Like it set up their whole no, relationship absolutely. with like three lines. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, and I think, you know, this version of the mother character she she seems to have know, just a healthier relationship with her son and she seems less preoccupied you know like in the original the mother is very much kind of talking about how you know she's divorced and she wants to be dating and there's a lot of like focus on that and her immediate interest <laughs> <laughs> in Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in this one, you know, I mean, she's, she's your average woman. She's attracted to the guy, but she immediately says like, there's some dialogue where she, she pretty much says like, yeah, I don't know about, you know, dating a guy like that. And, and you just, she comes across as capable, intelligent, caring. She's a single mother, but that isn't something that they kind of push in our face as being, you know, a miserable existence. Right. She seems like she's doing pretty good and she has a good relationship with her son and it's nice. You know, I mean, you think about the difference between 1985 and 2011. Yeah. I mean, that's not something that's that uncommon anymore. Absolutely. In 1985, that would have been like, oh my goodness, your life is over, Mrs. Brewster. But you know, it really wasn't. I mean, she had a job yeah. and had a life and that was, you know, avant-garde for its day. And now this was like, yeah, of course she's, she's her own real estate agent. So she probably makes really good money flipping houses in Vegas. She's one of those. And, you know, we also got to remember too, like this is on the tail end and got written and made on the tail end of the housing bust. So yeah, the fact that she's like still successful means she's really good at what she does. So she can be confident. And Charlie is very much like you would imagine she grew up as a latchkey kid, you know, because mm -hmm. he just comes and goes and it's no big deal. But what I love about this is that the dichotomy is totally different. Instead of being a geek 
and really kind of an outsider who's into nerdy stuff. Charlie like used to be, and then the hot girl paid attention to him at school and, <laughs> and somehow started dating him. And we'll said, never know why. <laughs> right, exactly. He he dumped all of that, started wearing, you know, puce tennis shoes and all this stuff. <clears throat> And I, I don't know. I think it's it's perfect casting to get a, an actor like Anton Yelkin, who can play so many things yeah. and played so many things in his career. But you could see like in a second, he could turn on the geek and then he could turn it off and he could be cool because he's got a cool voice and all of that stuff. And he's just he's kind of lanky and tall and like, you know, especially by Hollywood standards. And so I don't know, you you just you immediately like him, but you realize like this Charlie isn't the same Charlie we had before. This is yeah. Charlie much more advanced. And I think it's, it's interesting to mention here too, that Charlie was the one that was really pushing the sex on Amy last time, who finally mm-hmm. reluctantly kind of gave in to him and then they had to blow up and they repeat that scene here, but it's a totally different dynamic. Amy is like, Hey, let's go. Like, like, right. You got five minutes. Let's go right now. Like she is much more aware and you get the sense that she is much more mature and confident in herself than Charlie is. And I don't know, it's cute to watch that play out. Absolutely. Well, and I think one thing that I, I caught on in this version was these, these two kids had better communication. <laughs> Most definitely, which I think too, is part of the times. Like I, I think, um, you know, in the original, some of those exchanges are about what you expect in a teen movie. Right. And I think it's, it's kind of the level of understanding that a lot of us had <laughs> about relationships and communication. <laughs> True. And, yeah. You know, we didn't used to be very good at that. And I think people are more aware now and are better. And so it's reflected in the art that, you know, these teenagers actually had like some some pretty decent communication skills. He does kind of withhold from her for a while, but when she confronts him, like they actually have a conversation. Oh, that's one of the funniest (laughs) scenes. She's like, you don't just get to dump me. And like Tony Collette's face while she's coming halfway down the stairs, like, Oh, I love this girl. Like just the way she looks on her face. Like, Oh, this is going to be funny. (laughs) You know, watching him get his, his head handed to him by this chick. No, I I really did like that, that they set up the conceit differently this time that Charlie was somebody who was trying to run away from Mm. all the cool geeky horror movie stuff that he would have been into. Cause he thinks that I can't be that to hang out with this girl and her dude. Yeah. friends and there there may be no actor that plays a d-bag better than dave franco like there's just something about the oh, way that sure. guy looks and his face <laughs> and just he can just turn that on and it's like you're such a smarmy little jerk but it's you can't weird. help but not laugh at him because he's so funny too and I, I he's barely in this he's literally only in about three scenes learn everything you need to know when charlie rolls up at the school and he's got that whatever frappuccino thing you get from Starbucks. And and he's like, man, you can't let the girls take you out, man. You always get these girly drinks. But he takes you from him and starts drinking it. So I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yes, that's exactly what a guy like that would do. He calls him a pretty pony, and then he takes his drink. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny moment uh, between them. But you, we set up everything here to get to the fact that he has ditched his friend Ed. 
Christopher Mintz plot. So if you're going to get a geeky best friend, that's like typecasting in some ways. Because, I mean, it's just McLovin with an edge again. <laughs> Pretty and, much. Yeah. And I mean, the, give it to the guy. He's leaned into that and just kept playing that <laughs> for years. And and he's, he's an accomplished actor at this point. He's done a lot of stuff. But at this point, he was right at the height of that. So to get him to come in and do this, I mean, this is a nothing role because that's the one thing about this is different is the evil Ed role is cut way down um, from from the original. And from everything I read, there, there aren't like deleted scenes like the hour and 45 minute movie you get is what they wanted you to see. So there's really nothing cut except a, you know, a few minutes of gore here and there or a few seconds of gore here and there and stuff. So I don't know what you make of the Ed character and the way he plays out this time, because it's very different than, you know, Stephen Jeffries. It's very different. And I, I mean, we, we talked about the original, we talked about how, <laughs> how the Ed character was really cool, but the portrayal was kind of wacky in this one. I don't know. Yeah. You mentioned that he, ha you know, that he has an edge and he does, he's very self-confident and he's not afraid to stand up to the popular guys. He's not afraid to confront Charlie about ghosting him. And he's, he can be a little combative and a little insulting. And he had no problem insulting Amy. Mm -hmm. And, and so he's, I don't know. He, it was one of those, like, I, I was interesting in those first couple scenes. I was like, okay, the egg character, okay. He's okay. He's not, he's not particularly likable. So yeah. I sympathize with his plight as, as being the friend that got left behind and got ditched. And then at the same time, like, but he's, he's kind of a jerk a little bit. And he then is. for him to get turned so quickly, I was shocked, but then it kind of came together. Like, okay, they don't need me to fall in love with Ed. No, that, what, what they need you to understand you know? is Charlie left him behind for reasons that you can actually understand. Like it's mm -hmm. lousy the way he goes to his friend. Like, oh, and, yeah. and, and Tony Collette calls him. I was like, you should just talk to him. If you don't want to talk to him, you should just tell him. And his response is exactly what you expect the kid to say. Like that kind of defeats the purpose. It's like, yeah, he should take the hint, but she's right. It's like, no, you should just tell the dude like, Hey man, I'm not into that anymore. Chill. Yeah. And, you know, but yeah, and, and that, I think that's also just a marked difference between the times. The nerdy kids mm -hmm. don't take it from the popular kids anymore. They're like, whatever. In fact, they're probably cooler in a lot of ways than the, <laughs> than the you know, the, the preppy, you know, whatever upstart kids. Because, um, I mean, the, you know, that's all flipped nowadays. Oh, yeah. And, and so, so you get the sense that like, um, and the fact that they cast Lisa Loeb as his mother. I mean, oh that, my God. <laughs> the great cameo. Me, it made me so happy. Uh, like ridiculously happy. Yeah. I I did a double take. I was I was way too stoked about, about that cameo. I had forgotten that. <laughs> like I remember seeing it and I had totally forgotten that it was coming. And she opens the door. I was like, Oh, Lisa Loeb, I remember you. And I mean, but it, it, it but I'm like going, but this is the Marty Knox in touch is yeah. all this Gen X stuff is going to be laid all over this movie. Sprinkled uh, in there. Yeah. For millennials, which is funny. I mean, but it, but it is very much written by somebody who crafted a lot of the cool stuff that you like about Buffy and Angel in some yeah. ways, but a lot of Buffy. If you liked anything about Buffy from season three on, Marty Knoxon had a lot to say about it and had a lot to do with it. 
And you see that all through this, this movie too. And being such a big Buffy head, like I catch, I caught so many little things like words and phrases, not words, but like phrases and stuff here and there that I'm like, Oh, she's just like winking to the audience. Yeah. But that's this, this movie though is built to be very, post scream referential to everything and i was okay oh, with that totally. for the most part but i i think you're right about the egg character we don't need to like him we need to understand his plight that he doesn't really want to be friends with charlie anymore he just wants charlie to not die and and that's kind yeah. of a big thing and also like all of our friends that are missing when they're doing roll call every day man like that's not happenstance you know and and it does bring up the big conceit of the movie is that people come and go from vegas all the time that's why Charlie blows it off like it's no big deal. And he's the, it's the one that says, no, look, I've got, you know, dirt on Jerry. And he's got a whole file on his computer about him. And you see these videos and all the little, he's not in the camera. And you know, there's that other <laughs> friend talking. And it's, it's funny, though. But you're like, yes, that I mean, that's the kind of stuff that Charlie did last time. You know, all yeah. the investigative stuff. See, Ed really wasn't into that. He kind of made fun of Charlie and took advantage of him when it was the vampire. And then when he thought he was going crazy, he got worried about him. And he and Amy do the Peter Vincent work. This time, they've flipped all that. They've given all of that to Ed uh, to do all the, the homework, basically. And Charlie to be like, whatever, you know, and just trying to get over his friend, you know. And I don't know. It's it, it's funny. It, it, it brings a lightheartedness to a gory vampire movie um yeah and, definitely yeah and i mean you know charlie's got the dancer quote unquote neighbor uh, or whatever who obviously he's you know he's every teenage boy just staring at her I, I think amy has great lines like take away two pieces of cloth and she's a stripper you know and yeah. so yeah they have they have a whole <laughs> bit about that but she's going to become the first victim that we know of from jerry and um or that you know charlie gets involved with and that's going to be a big big turning point for him when he gets to that point but we're not quite there yet. We got to talk about Colin Farrell as Jerry. We do. Yeah, because Chris Sarandon played that character as this kind of Euro trash yuppie. Yuppie, you know? suave, yeah. Miami Vice kind of thing going on. Yeah. And funny you mentioned Miami Vice. Colin Farrell plays it like a construction worker or a guy yeah. at the bar. Or if you see Daredevil, he's just playing bullseye without the, the darts. Right. Again, I mean, I'm like, man, this is Colin Farrell being a just just a a redneck, which is funny. You got this bro energy. <laughs> yes. Very bro. Very, hey guy, can you loan me a beer? You know, all that kind of, I mean, the all this leather stuff. wrist cuff. Yes. That, and, but he's, but he's like <laughs> tight jeans and yeah. t-shirts, you know, and, and, I don't know. I, I thought it was funny because he's, you know, he has these huge caterpillar eyebrows. Um, and yeah. I can understand that because I live that life too. But the way he just kind of broods them over everybody. And I don't, I thought, I thought, I don't know what they told him to do, but whatever <laughs> acting choices he and Craig Gillespie decided to do together were perfect because he's, it's, he's not even paying homage to the last guy. He's no, just doing no. his own thing. When, you know, what I thought was really interesting about his his portrayal and this version of Jerry is that, I mean, Colin Farrell is a very attractive man. But right off the bat, you get more menacing than mm. sexy. Like, the the alarm bells go off a lot faster with him. Something about the way he carries himself and it's you don't have a lot of that that's that super syrupy suave charm 
that Chris Sarandon's Jerry had. This Jerry's a little more rough around the edges. And I don't know, right off the right from the jump, it's like, ooh, there's something, there's something about this guy. But that works because we've all seen the original Fright Night. We already know he's the vampire. So you don't, you know, you're not gonna slip it past us. We know that. And so it works for him to be a little more menacing, a little more unsettling earlier in the film. Yeah, we talked about that in the last movie that for a little while they play it off as a mystery. Like, is Charlie crazy? Is this guy a vampire until that first kill in the, right. you know, the, the, with the, you know, cheapy porn music going in the background <laughs> with that synth, 80 synthesizer? We don't get any of that. You know, it's, it's a totally different, you know, soundscape. And the soundtrack in this is almost unrecognizable in a lot of ways. It's just a bunch of, you know, there's got pop songs going in the background or songs that were yeah. popular during the time. I should say they were pop songs. And then just sort of atmospheric music. It's, it's not really memorable like the first one, but they're not trying to play like that we know he's the bad guy like you say and the way that they set him up as he's got this whole like serial killer yes. den that he's dug into the back of his closet and he's in his house and you know it's later on when peter vincent reveals after charlie shows him a picture of something he took in jerry's house that like oh that strain of vampires started you know here and they're diggers they they root in the ground and i'm like what a neat little thing to give like that vampires would have different modes of operating some like castles some like digging it up in the dirt and i'm like so jerry masking as a construction person isn't much of an act because he like seems to be able to handle himself with the tools and all this stuff he did all that to his own house that's the other thing is they don't give us his igor or any helper this time he's just doing it all himself no most definitely when i i kind of like that you know he's they're in vegas you know a place where we don't traditionally think of people setting down roots so it's not unusual that his house, most of the house looks like there's still boxes, like, like some bachelor just recently moved in and hasn't finished putting all his stuff away. Right. And, you know, he's, he's, (laughs) he's got his, his creepy dungeon, but it doesn't look like a Gothic mansion dungeon. It, it looks like a serial killer. I just put up these, these rooms really quick and drywalled it. And, it's done. It's functional utilitarian. He's building this, yeah, this nest of vampires and he doesn't really care what it looks like. No. Cause all he wants is just to have his numbers replenished. And that's what we yeah. find out is a lot of these vampires in the, in the ground and, and the ones that are, you know, locked in those rooms, presumably while they're turning um, are just there to become part of his horde at some point. So you figure like this guy's been around for 400 years and he's lost and gained a lot of folks. And so now it's time to go to a new place and build a new one. So he's got teenagers, a missing repairman. It looks like he, he tries to get the dancer, you know, that's, that's one of the big things. We'll talk about how Charlie breaks her out, but there's a great scene with him and Charlie. They've already met at this point, but it's when he really turns on the bro, as you said, and he's like, I really want some beer. He's trying to get invited in the house. You can tell. And I love how Charlie goes out of his way to like, nope, don't cross that door. I love it. And I, I love when they're, you know, they, they use the, the sound effect when, when he does cross into doors successfully. And so the, you know, some of the sound work that they did when he and Charlie are kind of at the door and when he goes to reach for the beer and he's like kind of going to put his hand into the door jam to grab the beer and like the sound kind of moves, like you're just like, Oh, 
he, he can't cross, right? He can't, <laughs> they, they kind of play with that, that they're just like on this razor's edge. He's that close. I like that scene in particular because it goes on longer than you expect it to. Yeah. And normally I'd be like, oh, that scene lasts too long. But I'm like, you know what? No, this movie doesn't breathe a lot. And for them to take the time to be slow and methodical in that moment, I like that because it sets up what happens next is Charlie decides to go, you know, see what's going on next door, you know, finally after all of that. And he, as of course any kid would do in the you know 2011s and would do now too. Now they'd be watching a YouTube video of it, but he's got like, you know, Google how to pick a lock. And he's trying to do that. And he realizes, <laughs> wait a minute, everybody in this town has a fake rock in their garden with a key in it. And, you know, it plays out exactly. And I like the whole bit of trying to get Doris out of the, uh, which, what what a name for a dancer, by the way. Anyway, it's probably not the name she goes by on stage, but whatever. Uh, yeah, but he's trying to get Doris out. And I, I, Colin Farrell plays this great because he comes in and, of course, he goes right for her. And it, it's real gory the way he drinks from her and all that stuff. And it's a real tender moment where she kind of puts her finger up to her mouth while Charlie's watching, like, don't, don't say anything. Like, she doesn't want anything bad to happen to him, which is cute. And when Colin Farrell's done with her and he throws her back in her cell and he walks out, he kind of stops and he sniffs the air. And it's like, he knows Charlie's there. And he's like, okay, I'm just going to like, figure this out on his own. I, was, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of sadistic nature that gives him a different energy than, like, what Chris Sarandon had. And I, I appreciated that as, a, like, a performance piece. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I love, and I, I love that the kids don't ever really kind of, they don't seem to ever really pick up on that. Like, no vampire super senses. You're not hiding from him. He's letting you go. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to sneak out of the house and all this <laughs> stuff. And he's just sitting over there like with his beard and his green apple going like, and then he, you know, they flash around and he's not in his chair anymore. He's just standing there watching. I'm waiting for him to go out the front door. This in the theater, when I saw this, it blew my mind because I did not expect this to come. I yeah. thought he's going to run out with this woman and it's going to be this big scene. And when she bursts into blood and dust into the scene, I was like, that's a very souped up Buffy dusting right there. That changed things. I was Absolutely. like, oh, wow. Well, and that then, was huge. I feel like at that point, we didn't realize he was turning everyone right right because when he turns when he turns ed in the pool earlier he gives this whole speech about like i could give this to you you know what do you have to live for which, which is a, a similar is a similar speech to what sarandon laid on stephen jeffries is like Absolutely. you're so pathetic let me give you something you you could never have it plays differently here because ed is kind of cool with who he is so it's even right. sadder it's like oh gosh yeah. it's awful he, you know? he doesn't he doesn't want to leave his life behind he actually likes the life he's living he's upset about you know the way things went down with charlie but he's okay you know, but because he gave this whole speech, I was kind of like, okay, he kind of went out of his way to turn Ed. So I was not expecting after having just bit Doris in front of us that she was turned. See, I, and I took that as a, as a, an interesting thing because, you know, vampire Lord varies, you know, this better than yes, I do about stuff. And in Buffy, <laughs> it was always, it. it was always very explicit in Buffy. You had to drink from the vampire that was, you know, biting you yeah. to turn into one. Otherwise you were just food, you know, and 
this time, like when he lets Amy drink from him later, it really just hypnotizes her more than anything. Yeah. It like gets her sort of hooked. It's like a drug. And then he's able to land to her. This plays much more like um, Dracula and stuff. When he drinks from yes. you, you're it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's one of the things about vampire stories is because there's this wide range of lore writers can kind of play with that and anyone who's seen enough vampire movies knows that there's i mean there are so many different types of vampires and approaches to the mechanics of the vampirism that i'm usually like i'm like okay if you just kind of give me the basics for a particular story, like this is kind of what the lore is for this story. I'll accept it because it, it does change. It does vary. Um, but it was surprising because I didn't realize that that was the direction we were going. And so when Doris, <laughs> when, when Doris dies in the sunlight, it was just like, Oh yeah. Yeah. They really turn it on its head at that point. And what you yeah. realize is Jerry let Charlie, destroy one of his you know brood to prove a point to him like yes. you don't know what you're up against and absolutely and you know i mean like that had to you know it already was blowing charlie's mind and good anton yelkin's a great actor and just the way he looks the next day like his eyes are just like he hadn't slept he is loped out of his mind you know and he's just like I don't, yeah. I don't know what to do. Mom, under no circumstances, can he come in this house? You don't have time to answer questions right now. And she's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but, you know, he, he goes off to school the next day and he's researching vampires. He's trying to figure out how to get in touch with Peter Vincent. It's, it's, we're going to get to him in a sec. Um, oh, yes. He are. and Amy have, have a little fun part in the in the library there. But then he goes to Peter and we've already talked about like the Chris Angel, David Blaine, Vegas show person thing. I yeah. love that. I thought it was hilarious. But David Tennant <laughs> rolls into this movie and absolutely steals it halfway into it. <laughs> it's true. Well, you know, so when he's introduced and he's and he's got the long black hair and the and the the pointed black goatee and and the whole leather getup and I'm just like, okay, like this, I'm like really. I'm really entertained by this. I'm really curious to see where this goes. But I did have the thought. I was like, man, they could have got him a better wig and better (laughs) beard pieces. Tell me you have budget for a better wig. And then when he goes, when when Charlie is able to talk talk his way up to the penthouse to get, get this interview, that's his ruse, as Peter Vincent starts taking off the wig, I'm like, oh, nice. It's supposed to look cheap and hokey. <laughs> it's supposed and, to look yeah. cheap. It's supposed to look hokey. It's yeah. it's all part of the illusion. And so I really and, appreciated that. And I don't know who his assistant ginger is, that he has this whole thing. I don't know who that woman is, that actress. They have the best, like, honeymooners yeah. lock horns relationship like <laughs> he almost burned off my extensions last time well it's because you keep moving you know or whatever and they 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 go back and forth at each other the whole time and what i love about this peter vincent is he's 
he's not what you would watch on television. Like your parents would be okay that you watch the old Peter Vincent show. They probably don't want you to watch this guy because he's, <laughs> you don't know what he's into. He's totally a Vegas show person. And then when you meet him, he's kind of like, I don't know, Russell Brand meets Steven Tyler. You know what I mean? He's, he yeah, he's drinks got this too much. rock star vibe. Yeah. He's got this rock, like occultist rock star vibe going. Exactly. And it's, it's really funny to watch him slink around. Yeah, and he's pulling his pants all the time, and he's you know he's always talking trash. And what I what I thought was neat though is that I'm watching this, and I'm going, they want us to think that this guy is a total fraud. Like last time, Peter Vincent was a fake; he was just an actor, and he kind of yeah. learned how to be a vampire hunter as the movie went. This time, they slowly reveal like this guy went this way and collected all of this stuff because he's scared out of his mind about what he knows is real in life. His parents were killed by a vampire and killed yeah. by this vampire, which is almost too close on the nose. That, that was, that was a, a, a step over the line for me. Yeah. I did the same vampire. Yeah. I was like, if, if it came from the same like horde of them or whatever, cause he recognized their right. flag or whatever. I'm like, that would have been fine. That was enough. It didn't need to be that it was Jerry that killed his parents. Cause then it's like, well now it's, now it's Jaws yeah. four. Now it's personal. Like that's, that's yeah. a little, little far, <laughs> but the journey he goes on. And again, David Tennant is so funny and it's so weird for him because I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan, but I watch some of his you know, Who stuff. And then I've seen him on things like all these uh, you know, British television shows where he plays these really buttoned up and just straight legs yeah. people. And for him to play this just wild character it had to be a blast to do. But I, I loved every minute he was on the screens. I thought this guy is absolutely stealing this movie and Anton Yelkin is trying to play straight against that and I can yeah. only imagine how much they cracked up on the set trying to get that to go because I, I liked the Vincent thing the only thing I didn't like again was that Jerry was the vampire that killed his family but I liked all of his cool stuff and all, I, I thought all that all that worked. Oh, that penthouse is like my dream. Right? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, I mean, if, <laughs> if you're a Vegas staple, you get to live like that. I mean, I'm sure Brittany's got a couple of those too. So all, all of all of the cases with all of his all of his occult relics. I love. Right. That. He's got a Grail with holy water in it under a glass case. He's kind of got a pistol for silver bullets. I mean, he's got all of it. I decorate my apartment kind of like it's Halloween or a or a graveyard 24 7 <laughs> 365 days a year. So I get it. Like the aesthetic, I'm into it. And then he just, you know, he has more money than God, so it's like Yeah, fancy, that's it. fancy. I, and I like that this time though because they bribed Peter Vincent last time with money cuz yeah. he needed cash. You can't bribe this guy. So how do you convince him? And and I love it's again, it's it's 2011. So it's right as smartphones are taking over our lives. And, you know, he's printed out pictures that he's taken off of his, his fancy smartphone here and left them. And Peter Vincent just happens to look at him later in the evening. And when he sees that flag, that's when it starts coming back to him. Like, I know this. This is bad. Like, I know that you know, that's what convinces him is the reality of it versus he had to be bribed into it this time. Right. Yeah. And it it's it's that little tweak makes it work and you don't question it. It's like, yeah, no, that works in this in this version. 
Exactly. I also like that he's kind of a moron and doesn't really knows what's going on in the world because Ed totally Ed and Jerry playing a great attack with the you have a late delivery and he's like okay and they're like wait a minute you get deliveries it's like I don't know do I he's like he has no <laughs> idea and and that's how they get up there because you invite the delivery man in you know you're it's it's yeah. not an Amazon guy but it might as well have been at this point and that's how ed gets in and this is going to be the end of ed but i i, I gotta say the attack is pretty pretty brutal and really well done yes it is there's a lot of blood and a lot of gore going on here i love that peter vincent has a panic room <laughs> yes <laughs> and that he, he very promptly runs to the panic room because i mean someone in his position would have a panic room and that, that is absolutely what they would do and I, I love this. I don't know if this was intentional or if I'm reading into it, but I, I love it seemed like an homage to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie that Ed loses his arm and he kind of goes off about he took my arm, which totally gave me flashbacks to the Buffy movie. Which yes, is yes, it's like Paul Rubens. <laughs> yes. It had like a little touch of that and it just made me so happy, warm my heart. And then, yeah, for Ed and... Charlie to square off is, I mean, just for the action sequence, just for the fight sequences, it's cool to watch, but there's also the weight that's behind it from the baggage left over from the way their friendship ended in life. So it's, there's more at stake than just getting out of there alive. Like these guys have history. And so, yeah, there's a sweet touch to the end of it too. When he finally stakes Ed and takes him out and as Ed realizes, like he's disintegrating or whatever he says to Charlie, like, it's okay, Charlie. It's okay. Yeah. It's almost like, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You released me from this hell. And I was like, wow like that was i did not expect that from this yeah. movie but it was a nice i was like that's i mean th again a dumber remake wouldn't bother right. with something yeah, like that he just stake him and it'd be, be over yeah but they play through that so it, again we don't know their history other than you know some stories in the hallway and some random youtube or pro proto youtube video of them you know sword and sandaling in the backyard um and it, i don't know it's it's a a sweetness to it and the other thing too is that amy is not just this shrieking violet either like she pulls yeah. that gun out she shoots jerry which he has a great like, like those are werewolves and then she realizes oh holy water she does like vampires and i, I love that i was like oh that's great girl you get your shot in because that was perfect. that was one of my favorites when, when she went for the revolver i was thinking and she looks at the bullets i'm like those are silver bullets that's not gonna work because, you know, for those of us who watch a lot of horror movies and creature features and monster movies, it's like, no, silver bullets is werewolves. It's not going to work. You're like, this is a trap. <laughs> and so for them to acknowledge it. That, you know, she's trying to use this weapon that that isn't really a threat to him, but because she is a smart, capable character, she recovers real fast and improvises. And, and yeah, it's a fun scene. Yeah, it's it's great, and then they're they're trying to run out of there, of course, and they get into the club, and we get the repeat of the club scene. Though again, we don't get the the sassy dance uh, this time, but Jerry does separate them, and I I like the way that he basically hypnotizes her by just yeah. looking at her. They they hold on to that, that that that's like standard vampire lore. If they can get their eyes locked on you, you just melt. 
you know, like they can do that to you, the good ones. Right. And I, you know, he cuts himself and you know, puts it on his lips and they, they make out a little bit and she's just into it. And I thought it was great. Uh, and cause Doris did this too. Um, Jerry starts to you know bite her and feed on her. And of course, uh, Charlie can't do anything about it. He's stuck in the back with the security guard in the club and, Amy, while she's she's her head's tilted over, says this tear just runs right down her face, and I'm like, yeah, man, that is, and it, I mean, you can tell like that's the actual actress doing that. I'm like, that that is a nice touch of just sadness and resignation, and it's like, oh, yeah. this is this is, and this, you know, that's when everything's gone to hell at that point, and that's that's how they cap act too, and that, and up to this point, like they've changed a lot of things, but the movie is falling very similar to the way the other one did. And yeah. I'm kind of impressed that they're holding on to the structure while having a very different party inside. It's like going back to the same club, but it's a different motif, you know? And it's, and it's very, it's very much like that club scene is very much nightclub in a casino in Vegas. Yes. Yes. The crowd, the throwing the t-shirts, like all of that is very it this looks very authentic it looks like it belongs it doesn't look like they kind of tried to manufacture something that would you know work in the movie as a remake of the original this is okay we'll do a nightclub but it's a vegas nightclub and it's going to look like vegas and feel like vegas and it really fits it doesn't feel like something that they went out of their way to manufacture no, you get that slamming industrial music. You got, again, the T-shirt cannons, the dancers. You got the bar that's like really lit up like it's at a cocktail or something. I mean, yeah, yeah it's it's everything. Like you say, it's the Vegas casino uh, uh, club experience. Um, yeah. And and you, you've got the security who look like if you've ever been to Vegas, y'all, security look like the security here. They probably were the guys <laughs> that they just hired. They're all these huge ex-football players. They weigh 300 pounds. They can throw you through a roof. And if you say one side word to them you're out on the street they're not gonna let you pass and i love that because too many times in these movies like people just get past the dumb security guard i'm like no right. if you try to run in vegas that's about the worst thing you can do like you're going down <laughs> if that happens so I, I i did appreciate that nice little touch we didn't talk about the big car chase scene that happened though that really sets oh, up a, yeah. the other thing here um J you know jerry decides that okay if you won't let me in the house i'll just blow the house up and i was like that was wild that was nuts i mean he's digging up the gas line in the yard cuts it lights it on fire and you see that flame fly down the uh the tube and it's like oh this is bad and i was like what a Not what good. a great idea though because that's the kind of thing you usually do at the end of a movie and i'm like right. nope the big bad wolf's just gonna blow your house in <laughs> i was I was, it was unexpected. Like what is, at first I thought maybe he had vampires stashed in their lawn or something. I was like, why else would you be digging? And so when he pulls on the line, I was like, oh, for real? We're going to go yeah. there? Yeah. It, you get like a lethal weapon explosion <laughs> in the middle of this. So they get to the car. They drive out. Mom hits Charlie's motorcycle uh, slightly. And as Jerry tries to crank it, he realizes the front wheel's jacked up. And this is a great scene in 3D. He throws the bike through the back of the Jeep Cherokee. And that wheel yeah. is about to take Amy's head out. That was a great scene. The, the CGI shows itself most in this scene. Because the yeah. driving around, it's like, oh, but I can tell you, having seen 
seen it in theaters in 3D, it looked awesome. In 2D, it doesn't look as cool. But in 3D, no. it looked like he was coming on top of you, like when he's driving <laughs> around him. So it's it. I'm like, yeah, that ain't going to look as good when it translates down. But it was a cool 3D sequence for him to drive around them in the CGI car. Yeah, I can... I'm a big fan of practical effects. And that's something we discussed when we talked about the original Fright Night. And so, yeah, the CGI in the last half of the movie, starting with that scene, I was a little like, mm, wah, wah. but then at the same time, you know, I can look at what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish visually using the CGI, like all those beats and and it's cool. I'm I'm cool with it. I mean, it works for what it's trying to do because it sets yes. up that the the car stops in the middle of the road and yeah. they don't know where he went. They're looking for him, and then random guy doesn't see them on the highway and rear ends them, and it turns out to be Chris Sarandon in a great cameo <laughs> uh, to get killed to get killed by by Colin Farrell. But I loved that. It was like, oh, that's a that's a great wink and a nod. I'm like, yeah, that. I, I like that kind of thing. I thought that was smart. And I love too that the, you know, Jerry uh, or Charlie goes after Jerry with a cross and he grabs it and his hand goes on fire and he blows it out. He's like, ain't going to be good, good enough. And he, I love it. He says this to Charlie. He's like, I've been staked. It sucks. It hurts, but nobody <laughs> ever gets the heart. They miss it. And then mom comes with that big century 21 real estate sign right through the back. And you know, it doesn't kill him, but he, I love how he just kind of scampers off. Like, you know, yeah. it, it, he it almost was, moves like an insect. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that goes into the whole burrowing in the ground part that yeah. you know they, they've talked about or that, it gets revealed. I, I like that. I like that mom stood up for herself, but of course she passes out at the end of it. Cause we have to, we have to throw Tony Collette to the side for some reason in this movie. I wish she could have hung around. Cause I, I really liked her, but I, it's gotta be about the kids. We know that. So that gets her to the hospital. All this goes down. And so Charlie realizes like, all I can do now, I've got to take the attack to him. I've got to go back to Peter and get some help. You know, and at this point, Peter's trying to pack up and get out of Dodge. You know, he's, he's he says, I'll give you this steak and it'll turn everybody magically back, which I'm like, OK, that was I, when they laid that out. I was like, well, that's obviously what's going to happen in the end. Is we're going to save a lot of people with this, which I've seen and heard that in other vampire stories. So it's not like uncommon. It just seems like, you know, uh, check off steak. <laughs> it's yeah. going to have to yeah. go off, you know, at yeah, some in point. Some vampire stories, it's part of the lore that killing the master will either kill or release, you know, the people that he's turned. Right, like, right. You know, so that's not, that's not that crazy. But I think it is something about the fact that it's, it depends on the device, the stake to do it, that, yeah, it does. Yeah, it has that checkoff steak thing going for it, but it, I'm okay. It's, it's like it's okay. It, it's just a it, it's a thing that gets dropped, and if you don't catch it, you'll watch it again later and go like, oh, that's why everybody's sort of normal at the end. But it's yeah. all about the arm up scene here for Charlie, and you know Peter's giving him the backstory. And what I love that he tells me is like, not only do my parents get killed by this, why do you think I collect all this stuff? You think it's just part of the show? You think I thought it was cool? It's like, no, I am scared of this my whole life. So he decides, uh, Charlie does like, well, I know what to do now. Because Peter says, well, if you can light a vampire on fire, you can really distract them when you're trying to you know, stake them, get closer to stake them. 
And Charlie gets this great idea of I'm going to get a fire retardant suit and I'm going to light myself on fire like Nikki Six when, when, the, when the time comes. It's an insane plan. But they go over to Jerry's to attack, breaking out windows. We get all of that again. And I love the fact that Jerry is like, oh, good. I'm glad you came. Now let me just leave you to her. And Amy is just as vicious. And I'm like, man, yeah. the Amy vampire, they they recreate that, you know, scary mouth and all that full of teeth. I thought that was really, really well done. It's, it's CGI to heck, but it still looks good. But hers look really good. Yeah, it did. I thought hers look really good. Like when when Colin Farrell, when we got his his full transformation earlier um, right before he killed Chris Sarandon on the highway. His was a little, it was a little wonky, the CGI on that, but on hers, it looked, it looked nice. I thought, I thought it was mm -hmm. pretty effective. Yeah, it was really good. And of course she's going to try to bite Charlie and he actually stakes her. And I'm yeah. like, wow, that's a move. Like I didn't see coming. And she he did some holy water on her last time. It was, I'm melting, you know, <laughs> so this is much cooler. And I love that she drops that line. Like you miss. He's like, I meant to, you know, he's, I'm just trying to get you out of the way so that I can, you know, go take care of business. Yeah. And poor Peter Vincent has shown up. He's going to, he's going to help, you know, <laughs> and he is worthless in all of this oh. fight because he's drunk. And what I like is that all these vampires are basically feeding on him. It's like yeah. a frenzy. And I'm like, wow, Peter Vincent is going down in this. And I, I don't know. I, I thought that was cool. And Charlie comes up with the idea of blowing holes in the ceiling so that sunlight can come in and get them off of Peter. And it sets up a last moment where Jerry gets to do the James Bond villain thing. Yeah and tell you what he's going to do to you. And normally I'd be like, Oh, that's kind of dumb, but I actually like it. And I like it because of the way Colin Farrell plays it, he's so sadistic. Yeah. It just, it's, you know, and I think you have to have an actor that has that kind of charisma and charm to just turn it a little to the side. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, that's really scary. Yeah, no. And, and you're right. It's, you know, and usually in the bomb villain thing, a lot of times you kind of walk away from it from a scene like that going like, God, how stupid is that? You know, to lay out your whole plan and you're just wasting time and you could have been done with it, but you're right. In this one, the Jerry character, as he's portrayed by Colin Farrell, like he is sadistic. He gets a kick out of this. Just like he got a kick out of watching Charlie go through all the trouble of getting Doris out of the apartment, knowing full well, that Doris was not going to survive the sunlight in this scenario, it's like he knows he's got Charlie right where he wants him. The sun will go down eventually. They're trapped. They're surrounded. And and he's getting this, this pleasure from watching Charlie squirm and from this situation that he's created. Well, here's a great bit of dialogue about like, you know, he's talked before about how you can smell things off of people and it just gives off a very specific scent. And he's done it in this way that's like really creepy and yeah. like your mom's giving something off. And, Ooh, Amy, you know, he's just being such a ledge. But this time he's talking about I can smell your fear. It's a very specific scent. And the way he says it, it's like it's a yeah. drug to him. And I'm like. I, that that's another Buffy thing too, um, because that's a lot of like what made Angel so sadistic was you know he just loved scaring the hell out of right. people before he could kill them, and and I love and I like that they you know Marty brought that into this because it's like yes that's exactly what this kind of vampire would do, and 
that's why it's so cool when Charlie turns around and says, well, we're going to do what you gave me the idea for. And Peter Vincent's like, what? And he sees him putting on the mask. He's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so when he, but when he lights himself on fire to jump at the vampire, I'm like, that is a genius move. It's insane, but it's, it's genius. Crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I, so I actually watched this twice in the last 24 hours prior to our conversation. So I wanted to make sure I got a little nuances and, and the, so the, the first go around, I was kind of like, well, why didn't you, why didn't you throw it at, like, I was just kind of like, did you really need to light yourself on fire? And I think it was kind of, I, I, I was just like, that's, that's nuts, but it does make sense. It's like, you know, Jerry's too quick with his vampire speed. You're not going to be able to throw a lighter at him. You're not going to be able to get close enough to light him. But you can use the surprise of lighting yourself up and flinging your body at him to catch him off guard and and get close enough. So it's it is pretty genius. I mean, it was a great idea because, again, it does catch him off guard because he shot so many things at him. And Jerry catches the arrows every time. Like you say, he's just he's I mean, he even says, like, you think I've been alive 400 years without knowing how to survive? Like there's no way you can you can beat me. Well, you have to turn the tables on him and something he doesn't yeah. expect, which is you're gonna put yourself in extreme danger <laughs> to try to get at me. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and I will say when when it goes full CGI Jerry here at the end, it it doesn't look great. It it doesn't look bad, but it's like, oh well, that that definitely became not an actor very quickly in, yeah. in this scene yeah. when when we stab him. I felt like I was looking at General Grievous from Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> for a minute i mean it, it has a little bit of that to it it, it it doesn't and it ends about as bad as dumb but you're not wrong my friend <laughs> yeah but we get the magic saint michael stank that you know of course kills jerry and what i like is that it takes him a long time to die which yeah. it should and it took that you know it took the the surrounding vampire forever to blow up and die with the sunlight and all that last time so they keep that around and then we see the black spirit jump out of all the people that are still alive down there and they're all restored to normal. And Dave Franco punctuates this with a, a hell of a night. <laughs> Cause you always, I always love that moment in, in a movie where like people kind of come to and don't know where they are and are kind of trying to like figure it out. Yeah. But it makes sense that like a teenage boy who looks like the type to go to keggers and like like this is probably not the first time he woke up someplace and didn't know what happened uh so yeah, this kid, this kid grew up in las vegas like god knows yeah, where he's where he's woken this is, up this is not a new scenario the vampire yeah. thing is 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 not something he's used to but waking up in a strange basement might have happened before. Yeah. What's so what's so what's funny about it is Amy and and Charlie are having this whole cute scene about hey hey how are you I'm good and Peter Vince is the one that plants one on Charlie <laughs> at the end of it it's, again it's not what you expect but it's exactly what you think that guy would do in this moment yeah. uh, and it's funny and so we we get to the end here which is great is Peter Vincent essentially loans Charlie and Amy his penthouse which sure okay and we we 
didn't talk about it last time or, or go over the scene specifically, but Amy's been trying to get Charlie in bed the whole movie. Like the whole, so she's finally got him <laughs> and Peter walks through, of course, have some fun there. And then he leaves and she, and I love she gets the last line about, do we finally have some alone time? <laughs> finally, can I get you to myself? And that's, that's how it cuts out. I, I thought that was a cute way to end it. It was cute. As far as these kind of, you know, happy ending kind of things goes, it's, I, I like the way that they set it up. It didn't go on too long. It's just enough of an homage to the original but it's got they've got their own flavor and and the characters are true to themselves to the end it was it was it was a it was a fun way to end it and i think it's neat that you end a remake with a song that is a cover that is not what you expect 99 problems from jay-z has a very specific flavor to it yeah and then hugo gets it and it's this banjo bluegrass street busker <laughs> version with all this harmony in it and it's like that's not exactly what it's i expect <laughs> here but i thought you know that's genius of whoever decided to stick that there is like that punctuates the whole thesis of this movie you know this story but here's it from a different set of tone. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, 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 I like ironic music. I think it's fun when you do stuff like that. You know, Mr. Sandman and Halloween too, like introduced that concept to me. So to do it here, I was like, well, that's, I mean, that's exactly what I would expect from somebody that wrote years of Buffy. Like that's, yeah, that's nice what, touch. yeah, that's what you do at the end of these things. Uh, and, and, it, you know, I like the fact that we get the, the credit swipes and, and you get everybody's um, sort of best scene, you know, yeah. to, to show who they are because um, we, you know, there's no opening credits. It's just Fright Night and then boom, you're in the movie. Right. So I, I liked it. I thought it was fun and I, it's a cool way to end uh, a, an interesting movie, but was it cool enough? It's time for final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn <laughs> ratings. So, Carmelita, what are yours for the 2011 remake of Fright Night? You know, I had a lot of fun with this. Would I, if someone asked me, hey, let's watch a movie. You want to watch the original Fright Night or the remake? Of course, I'm still going to say the original Fright Night. No question. But I had I had a lot of fun with this. I think that they... They they made all the right little tweaks to make it their own. It was funny. You know, they didn't, it was kind of more on the horror action side, but it worked. I had a lot of fun with this. I think the cast was great. Yeah, the CGI was eh, not my favorite, but it's okay. But it it's a thing that we kind of live with now. <laughs> it's just the reality. So popcorn, man, this is hard. It's hard. So I'm going to say that it's, it's a medium, but the person who's behind the counter really likes you because they see you come in all the time. So they like, heap it. So it's like falling off the sides and they put a little extra butter on top. I think you have nailed it in one word. This movie is fun. It is fun. And it, takes its origins seriously enough and reverentially enough to pay off most of that stuff while giving us something new. And it's, this movie is rescued by the fact that it's got four incredible actors, really five <laughs> leading it the whole way through. Anton Yelkin is great in this. 
Um, Imogen Poots is great in this. Tony Collette is great in this. Colin Farrell's awesome in this. David Tennant is hilarious in this. If you put other people in, it probably doesn't work as well. And I'll go ahead and say now, they did an homage sequel to this. Don't bother because they don't have any of that. (laughs) They don't have anybody in it, you know, one. And if you do, they're not they're not doing anything with it. It's just a cash in. This is what you do when you do a remake. You give it a different flavor. And it, it, I'm in the same boat. If somebody asks me, I, I want to watch a vampire movie that's not Twilight. Okay, thank you. And let's see what we could do with this. And so I, I would go like, well, watch Fright Night from 1985. And then I would tell them, though, now, if you like that, and if we watched it and they were like, oh, that was awesome. I'm like, you owe it to yourself to go watch the 2011 remake now. Just give it a spin. It's It's not the 1985 one but it's still good and it still works on so many levels. And again, the cast is so good. That's what makes it. The people making it obviously cared a lot about it and they, you know, they, they've all worked for years and, you know, continue to do good work. And this one holds up. It's disappointing that it didn't find its audience in a theater because I'll, I'll tell you, having seen it in the 3d, it was really well done. The parts of it that show the edges now are the parts that are obviously the 3d parts. So that's where the CGI really fails. And I agree with you there. That doesn't hold up as well, but the story works, the actors work. It's fun. And I'm going to give it a large popcorn. It's not as strong, a large as the, the last one, because again, that last one is is classic, but this was still really good. And I think 10 years on now, more and more. And I just kind of did a scan review. There've been a lot of people writing about this movie the last three or four years Mm. that are like, yeah, I should have given that a second look when it came out. Cause that was worth their time. And I was like, see, I've, I've always said that. So uh, yeah, I, I I think this movie is definitely worth the time um, and is a good example of a remake that gets it right. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I use it often as, as an example of like, you know what, this one did it right. And it's worth, it's worth your time to take a look at it again. So, so large popcorn for me, definitely recommend folks check it out. Carmelita, it's been a blast talking with you again, talking vampire movies as always tell folks how they can follow you on the internet. So you can find me on Twitter and at letterboxd. Same handle on both at Carmelita says, and it was so much fun talking Fright Night, the remake with you, Jay. Thank you again so much. Absolutely. Thank you for being a part of Filmstrip. And folks, thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find all of the back episodes of Filmstrip at filmstrippodcast.com. You'll find your favorite podcatcher, Apple, Google, Spotify. We're on all of them. Please leave us a positive review. Share the show with others. You can also follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Get updates about the shows and what's coming up next. All kinds of cool stuff uh, for you to check out, and we'll keep turning out shows. Uh, probably till, I don't know, until microphones stop working. I don't know. We just keep doing new <laughs> stuff. It's always, it's always, there's plenty of movies to watch. And we have a good time talking about him here on the show. So for Carmelita, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.